Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Tēnā rā koutou, kua hui hui mai nei i tēnei pō. E mihi ana ahau ki ngā tangata whenua. Ko Waikato te awa, ko Taupiri te maunga, ko Chloe Stanchel tōku ingoa. Uh, good evening, everyone, to all of you here who are gathered here tonight. Also an acknowledgement to the people of this land. Waikato is the river, Taupiri is the mountain, that holds mana, that holds prestige in this place, and my name is Chloe Stanchel. It is a real privilege to be speaking to you this evening in this year's Gateway Summer Series. As you've heard this year, um, this, uh, each speaker has been asked to choose and share their thoughts around a parable. It seems like a strange word, doesn't it, parable? A word I hear only when I'm at church. So for those of you who are new to church or who, like me, have never really thought much about what a parable actually is, a quick and simple way to think about them is that they are short stories told by Jesus to teach us something. Um, N.T. Wright writes of parables. They invite listeners into a new world and encourage them to make that world their own, to see their ordinary world from now on through this lens, within this grid. The struggle to understand a parable is the struggle for a new world to be born. And so tonight, my goal, my aim, is to encourage and challenge us all to make even just a small sliver of God's world our own, to look at one of these parables as more than a a teaching that we simply listen to, smile at, and walk away from, but actually something that we bring into our world. This is by no means a simple task. Even understanding the depth of meaning within each parable is a challenge some theologians dedicate their lives to. However, the real challenge for all of us is to not just understand the parable, but to make it a reality in our world. So before we read the parable, I want to briefly share with you one way that I've found helpful when it comes to making the world that Jesus is painting in his parables, in his stories, my own. And that I've found is best described using the Maori verb rongo. Some of you may remember your teachers using it at school in the command whakarongo mai, meaning listen to me. As well as, as meaning to hear or listen, rongo also means to hear, feel, smell, taste, perceive. It's used for all the senses except sight. So how does this te reo Māori word help us understand the parables? Well, Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty four of all his teachings, parables included, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. And in the Māori, nā kōti tangata e rongo ana ki enei kupu aku, e mahiana hoki, ka whakaritia e ahau ki te tangata mahara, i hanga i tōna whare ki ronga ki te kāmaka. The word here, or in some translations it is listen, in the Greek means to properly hear or comprehend by hearing. The word rongo is, I think, a more accurate match to the Greek 
and to what Jesus is asking us to do. To be able to make his world our own, we have to first rongo, then follow. We cannot read or listen to these words flippantly, like we would a friend retelling a story we've already heard. Rather like we would a friend who's sharing something that is weighing heavily on their heart. When we truly rongo, we listen, hear, feel and perceive more than just the words we are hearing. We're also picking up the vibe, the atmosphere, the tension, the emotion, the wairua, the spirit of what is being said. When we read Jesus' words, or any words, in his book, let's try to rongo to his words and spirit. So, let's pray. God, you're amazing. You created this land, your land, Aotearoa, and you created each one of us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your words, which we have collected together in your book, the Bible. Thank you for your wairua tapu, your spirit, who helps us to understand your word. And so we ask for an extra measure of your spirit tonight. We know that your word is powerful, that it changes lives, and we ask tonight that you would change our lives as we read it and learn from you. God, use my words for our good and your glory alone. Amen. Okay, we're going to have a look at the parable first, then look at two perspectives within the parable, followed by, I think, what I think we can pull out and learn from it. I'm reading from the message, Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Just then, a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do we need to do to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as yourself as well. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how do you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite religious man showed up. He also avoided the injured man. A Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly. The religion scholar responded. Jesus said, Go and do the same. Okay, the first perspective I want to pull out is that of the priest and Levite, who both avoided the injured man. They were both walking along his part of the road and crossed to the other side so as not to come close to him. Now, priests and Levites were both considered to be part of the religious upper class, descending from the tribe of Levi, who was one of the sons of Jacob. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Priests were chosen for their qualifications 
and they had to remain ceremonially clean to perform their duties in and around the temple. Both of these men had perfectly valid reasons for not stopping to help this injured man. For a priest or Levite to interact with either blood or a body would be significant defilement requiring a seven-day process of purification. We can read it for ourselves in the law in Numbers 19, verses 11 to 13. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. So it almost seems justified that each of these men carefully cross the road to avoid any possibility of becoming unclean and carried on their journey. However, Jesus' teaching at the end of this parable still highlights that these men did not act in the way that they should have, which is as a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers. Yes, they had reasons to avoid, but Jesus is still using them as a comparative example against our Samaritan of what not to do. So let's jump into the perspective of these Levites. They're walking down the road and they come to the man who is half dead. The Bible is quite clear about this. The man is pretty far gone. He hasn't just taken a few blows by a few delinquent youths. He's on death's door and could go either way. So these two men both walk close enough to see his condition, realize it's not good and walk past him on the other side of the road. They make the assumption he's too far gone and write him off. He's not worth it. The loss of time they would need to spend becoming clean again so as to return to their jobs, the loss of money, energy, possible employment, lost time with their families, etc. So they wrote him off. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story. It's not actually a historical recount of an event, but a story created and told by Jesus. This is really important to keep in mind for all parables, because if that's the case, what does it mean? It's in the Bible for a purpose. Just, oh, Jesus is using these two men as examples of what not to do. Making assumptions and judgments about people is something that I've struggled with too. I have found also that at times these assumptions had led me to write people off. This looks different each time, but it might mean I think someone is too content in their world to be able to come to know Jesus or too involved in their own religious community to understand the freedom of life with our God. Or I think they're too believing of the lies that tell them that their cycle of poverty is too hard to break. Here's an example of an assumption I made from a few years ago. In 2018, I quit my job and went to live in Laos, or Laos, a forgotten landlocked country squished in between Thailand and Vietnam, China and Cambodia. I lived in a town called Pakse, where I was flatting with three Lao girls, a similar age to me. All three girls were from different tribes and therefore different home villages. They all spoke Lao, varying degrees of English, as well as their own tribal language. As we do, they would travel home to see their families for holidays or special events. A few weeks after arriving in Laos, I went with one of my flatmates, her name is Borgao, to her village. Borgao's village was particularly remote and known by both foreigners like me and local Lao to be quite a destination. A trip to this village was certainly an adventure. I want to tell you a bit about this village and the assumptions, the judgments that I made of the people there 
and ashamedly admit of how I wrote them off. So this village, which is way up in the mountains, somewhere between Laos and Vietnam, has a population of about 100 people with maybe 15 to 20 homes. The villages have gardens um, sorry, and small rice farms littered around the surrounding mountainous land. They are subsistence farmers, which means they grow crops and raise livestock sufficient only for their own use. There isn't enough for trade. The result of this makes them exceptionally reliant on the climate and rainfall patterns. Their well-being and lives are quite literally dependent on the weather to grow their crops, and what they grow determines what they eat. They get water from a nearby stream, a five-minute walk from the village. From here, they collect their drinking, cooking, and washing up water, which they carry back to their homes. This is also where they bathe, uh, bathe and wash their clothes. Most of the homes are built on stilts and comprise of one room where they sleep, eat, and cook. The cooking part makes this very open-plan living less than ideal, as they cook over an open fire in, inside this one room. There is no chimney, so any smoke and fumes quickly fill the space. In the last few years, the village got electricity, but it's intermittent and an extra for some an unattainable expense. So, during my visit, I was trying to make sense of all that I was seeing, as well as what I was hearing about their religious beliefs. Most villages in rural Laos are animistic. This means they believe there are an infinite number of spiritual beings that are involved in their lives, and these are capable of hurting or helping them. They can be found in literally anything, such as the environment, other people, animals, plants, forces of nature, like the rain, wind, sun, or moon. Whether the spirits help or hurt depends on the individual and group's actions and ongoing devotion through prayer, sacrifice, and offerings. This makes, them exceptionally, this makes things ex exceptionally difficult for anyone choosing to not continue with this way of life anymore. Because any tragedy, natural disaster poor rainfall, poor crop growth, ill health, etc., is attributed to them for not pulling their weight, so to speak, in the collective responsibility of appeasing the spirits. Now, we call animism a religion because we're looking from the outside, but to them it's not. They don't have a word for it as we do Christianity or Islam, or even a word for religion because it's just part of being in this village. It's their lens, it's their worldview. Okay, so why am I sharing all of this? What's it got to do with our parable and of making assumptions and writing people off? Well, after visiting this, visage, this village, I couldn't stop thinking how impossible their situation was. How could a village so locked up in a stronghold of fear, sacrifices and oppression in the middle of nowhere ever come to know the Jesus of Nazareth? Surely they were too far gone in the trap of animism and spirit worship, to be ever free to know the one true God? How could it be possible for anyone, church or missionary, to challenge their way of life? So when I saw the village and learned a bit about their beliefs, I made an assumption or judgment which led me to write them off. Like the Levite and priest, I made an assumption based solely on what I could see. Unlike the Samaritan, I forgot to take into account the God factor that this little village and each person in it is just as valuable to him as this gateway, Fano, and each person in it. 
And so in this story, my flatmate, Boa Gao, brought the God factor. Her story begins in a field long before this visit of mine, where she was looking after her family's buffalo, having never left her village and having no one in the mountain range who had even heard about Jesus. She looked up to the sky and said, if there's anything else out there, I want to know. A few months later, seeking job opportunities and wanting to experience life in a more urban setting, she ended up in town, cleaning and cooking for a household. This home happened to be next door to a newly established mission organization, the same one I would come to work at many years later. One day they were singing worship songs. She heard it through the window and was drawn to it. She soon met the Kiwi couple that had set up the organization, then met the Jesus who answered her cry, and the rest is history. Borgau went back to her village, way up in the mountains, and hasn't stopped telling her people about Jesus since. Yes, there was, and still is to this very day, incredible resistance. The persecution and rejection that she's faced at the hands of her own people has been very real. But there are many, young people especially, who are from this village and deeply love God because of Borgau and her cry for help so many years ago. My judgment was so wrong. It was an assumption based solely on what I could see. And from my perspective, it was all bad. Every barrier to salvation that could exist seemed to. But I did not take into account God. I didn't consider the value God places on the people, irrelevant of what we think or the value we place. I didn't consider the God factor. But fortunately, I learned just how wrong I was. I lived with Borgau for nearly a year and have never seen faith like hers. She is the bravest Christian I've ever met. I learned that assumptions are no good and that writing people off is totally ignoring God's heart for his children. Now, if we go back to the parable, the second perspective I want to look at is that of the Jewish scholar or lawyer, who is actually the one we can thank for this parable. He is the one who, in verse 25, asked Jesus, what do we need to do to get eternal life? Jesus then does a classic Jesus move and asks him a question back. Well, what do you think about what it says in God's law? And of course, he answers like any good Sunday school kid would, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives him the response that I think he was fishing for, and no doubt, all of us are craving too. Of good answer, do it and you'll live. This lawyer can see the weight, the magnitude of this command. So tries to find a loophole by asking, and just how do you define neighbor? And with that, our story begins. So from the perspective of the priest and Levite, the injured man on the road was too far gone. Um, half dead was good enough for them and they wrote him off. For our lawyer listening to Jesus, because of his assumptions and judgments, the Samaritan in the story was too far gone to be a believer. He had written him off as someone that Jesus would use as the saving character in one of his stories, especially as the example of what it means to be living in the new kingdom. The kingdom that this Jewish Israelite man and all Israelites before him have been waiting for. Here's some context for our Jewish lawyer. 
The differences between first century Jews and Samaritans were ethnic, racial, cultural, and theological. So basically everything. Jews thought the Samaritans were not only half-breeds, but heretics. Many in their beliefs were seriously wrong. They were rivals. They hated each other. Our lawyer and the group of other Jews who would have also been listening to Jesus at this time didn't want the Samaritan to be the hero. They'd be more inspired and satisfied by a story where they were portrayed as evil. This would be like our desire for the baddie to be defeated and a resulting happy ending in the stories and movies that we watch. In fact, at the end of the story, many theologians argue that the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to answer Jesus' question of which traveller was the man's neighbour with his name or title, Samaritan, because he was so repulsed by it. When Jesus asks him, he answers the one who treated him kindly. And yet Jesus directly challenges, in fact destroys the man's assumptions and judgments of the Samaritan. Jesus intentionally chooses a Samaritan as the hero because it's as controversial as Scar being victorious in The Lion King or Darth Vader in Star Wars. In fact, the real bomb is dropped at the end of the story when Jesus infers that the Samaritan is the one who will get eternal life, which was the question originally asked by the lawyer. It's said that to get this, you need to love God and love your neighbour. Loving your neighbour is demonstrated in this story by the Samaritan, caring for the injured man. And we know, because there are historical accounts in the Bible, that there were Samaritans who loved God and who believed that Jesus was who he said he was. So this time we have a religious scholar or lawyer who has assumed that because of the differences in his and the Samaritans' ethnic, cultural, and religious standing, he must not be good and likely that he must not be saved. This is another example of assumptions and judgments being made to write someone off. Though we don't often walk on dirt roads to Jericho, these parables have been told for us. They are for us to apply to our world. And I would argue that we, myself very much included, when we reflect honestly, we see that we're making these assumptions and judgments every day. Assumptions based on appearance, money, job, car, church, food, style, speech, house, shoes, skill, etc. Jesus is telling this story for a greater purpose than to challenge this one man's this one lawyer's view of how he looks at half-dead people lying in the street, or even the salvation of Samaritans. He's telling it to challenge the assumptions and judgments that we make, to challenge the way we write people off. The parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost or prodigal son are all stories that tell us of the value of the one. Matthew 10, verse 29 to 31 reads, What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In John 3, verse 16, 
for those of us that know it well, it kind of washes over like a boring wave in the surf, but it's really quite beautiful. And it's a testament to what each person in here and out there mean to God. John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Kuya anō te aroha, o te atua ki te ao, ho mai ana e ia tāna tama kotahi, ki a kahore ai e ngaro te tangata e whakapono ana ki aia, e ngari, ki a whiwhi ai ki te ora tonu. People are made in the image of God. They, we, have his fingerprints all over us. So if you're like me, and you find your assumptions and judgments lead you down a slippery slope to writing people off, we have to do something about it. But we're not going to drift into this. Like anything that's worth doing, we don't think about it once and wake up having achieved it. It takes intentional action. And one action that I want to suggest for us to finish off tonight is to get close to people and rungo. Brené Brown is a sociologist and researcher. Her TED Talk on shame and vulnerability currently sits at number two on the most watched TED Talk list. She quotes, We live, worship, go to school, and hang out with people who are just like us. We're the most sorted Americans in human history and lonelier than ever, too. She's commenting on Americans, but I can see that it's a fair comment of Aotearoa as well. If not totally yet, then soon. Her solution to this? Brown also writes, we're going to need to intentionally be with people who are different from us. Brown is highlighting an issue she can see from her research. The sorting of people into ethnic, racial, cultural and theological groups. The same differences that we saw between the Levites and Samaritan. Her solution is to intentionally be with people who are different from us, to get close and rungo. Ephesians 2 verse 14 to 18 shows us that this was God's vision of his kingdom, of earth all along. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders, Māori and Pākehā, rich and poor, Apple and Samsung, cool and uncool. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. Instead of continuing with two groups of people, separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals, so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. It was when I got to know Buagau and other village members as humans with dreams, fears, a sense of humour, loves and hobbies that my assumptions about her and her village changed. When I got close and took the time to rongo. 
Jesus' stories, these parables, are an offer to see our world through his worldview. When we get close to and rongo, to our neighbours, to everyone, we begin to make this worldview ours. Like with the musicians, like to join me. Maybe you're new to church tonight, or back after a long time away, or just not really sure about it all. Well, my message to you is that God doesn't write anyone off. He heard Borgau's cry on the mountains in Laos, and he'll hear your unspoken but genuine thoughts tonight. To the rest of us, the believing but broken, the challenge is real but with the God factor not insurmountable. To help us drop our assumptions, let's see the guy wanting to wash our windows at the traffic lights, wind down our windows and ask how his day is, what he did for New Year's. Ask the dairy owner what their favourite ice cream is, or our boss if what, or about what he did over Christmas. It doesn't have to be huge, but as Jesus asks us, his sheep, to rongo, to his voice, to listen properly, let's get close to others in rongo. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.